several, several years ago. I'm talking 15, maybe even more years ago. I had a conversation with a young man, and he, he was relatively new to the church, but he really hadn't left his church, but he kind of had. He was kind of in that transition time. He explained to me why and, and so on. And, and, but they were going through a very difficult time. He had lost his job, and he was facing some rather heavy financial crises, wondering if down the road he would be able to pay his, you know, his mortgage and you know, payments were due and we don't have the money. And so he came to me and he said, Mike, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, I'll tell you what, kind of just walk me through some of your finances. And he did. And I said, okay, what kind of assets do you have? And he listed some things. And one of them was a twenty-five dollars to $35,000 uh, Harley-Davidson. And I said, you know what? I think we found an answer to your problem right now. And he paused and he said, oh, it was like, that's my baby. And I said, you know, I, I, I hear that. You, here's the various things. Where are you going to get the money? And I kind of walked him through it. And he said, well, I, I tell you what, can, can you just talk with my pastor? And I just don't, I just don't know. I said, okay. So give me the name, number. And I called the pastor, and we had a discussion. And can I just be honest with you? I was very surprised to listen to his former pastor or pastor's uh, answer. And this person said, you need to realize that he cannot sell that Harley-Davidson. That Harley-Davidson is a mark of God's blessing on his life. That Harley-Davidson is a way in which God demonstrated that he loves him and cares for him. And on and on this, this person went. And I was like, please understand, I, I get it that we are the head and not the tail. But that head is not necessarily a Harley Davidson. That head is God's favor and blessing with mankind, open doors of opportunity. It, it can be in so many ways. But in this situation, I truly believe the answer is sell the Harley Davidson. And wow, he, he didn't need it. He already had a vehicle to drive, so it's not like he needed it. And so... That person just, nope. And they came from a prosperity gospel perspective that I graciously challenged, but realized they absolutely, no, that was not the right answer. So I said, look, I am not his pastor. Um, I'm just going to encourage you then to resolve this issue. But as a church, we, we cannot help him out. Um, and, and if you can, then I'm going to encourage you to do that. Maybe that's the answer. Well, I, I I don't know whatever happened to that person, but I just need you to realize that when I was talking with this person, I was truly grieved in my spirit because there was such a, a stranglehold on this issue of finances, of, of money, that somehow money was this declaration that I am truly loved of God. And, and my question then is, what about Jesus? Was he raking in the bucks? He didn't drive a Harley Davidson. He certainly didn't have a donkey that looked like one. I'm being facetious, of course. What about Paul? Paul said, I rejoice because there are times in which I've got absolutely nothing. I'm dirt poor. And yet there are times in which God has provided. And the, the, the challenge for us is if God blesses us, 
I truly believe that true prosperity is that if God can get it to you, he needs to be able to get it through you. That God, This idea of prosperity is an abundance so that we have this amazing opportunity to be generous and help others. And when we miss that, when finances get bottlenecked and all it does is feed me and we step back and say, well, you can have a trickle and you can have a trickle and that's it. Something has happened to that heart. And I'm sharing this with you because in our day, there are so many voices, competing voices out there that are declaring different truths. And when you come to your Bible, you kind of scratch your head and say, Man, I don't see that. You know, I, I hear the, the verse that they're reading, but I don't get that. And, and just so you know, nobody else does, but this person or this group does. And the problem is that the world has so much to say, and we listen to the world way too much, church. The church listens to the world far too much instead of loving the truth and just saying, you know what, when it comes to politics, I want to immerse myself in the word and I want to find out what it has to say. When it comes to issues, social issues like abortion, and I hear what the world is saying and all about women's rights, but I want to go to the word and will love the truth and I don't want to twist it. As we looked at Last week, I want to cut straight the word of truth. And I don't want to twist it. I want to understand what God's word says. And from this, I'm going to build my life. Jesus said that the foolish man builds his life on the sand. And when the storms come, it washes him away. And if that, that sand is, it, the sand is anything other than what Christ taught. What Christ taught, see, that's the rock. That's what we need to stand on, church. I'm going to encourage you. Don't expect me on Saturday nights, whoever might be teaching on Tuesday nights, to be your only source of getting into God's Word. Don't do that. Because, number one, that puts undue pressure on me. Number two, I'm not standing before God to give an account you are, and it's not like he's going to judge you, but he wants so much to bless you with rewards. And how you live your life truly is connected to what you believe. It starts here. What you believe will impact the way you live. And that is how God will reward us. The Bible talks about people making it by the skin of their teeth. That's actually the phrase Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I don't want that for you. I don't want you to make it by the skin of your teeth. It's not about salvation and, and coming to Jesus and then, wow, we get to live the rest of our lives however we want. No, that has no eternal perspective. That lifestyle, that mindset, no eternal perspective. And, and so I want us to be students of the word for this reason. But by the way, the word disciple means student. It's a student. Not just a student who studies, but a student who follows. 
I want to I want to study Jesus and I can't do it by listening just to the world. I do it by listening to God. We're going to find that as we dig into the scriptures tonight. Before we do, I I want us, I want to throw out a word of caution, and and we're going to look at just a few verses very quickly here in 2 Peter chapter 2, in which Peter is, he is challenging, he's challenging people to follow after Jesus, but he's saying caution, He's wanting them to to follow after Jesus and listen to the prophetic word that has been revealed in their day and to not listen to false teachers. This is what he says in 2 Peter 2, verse 1. He says, but there were also false prophets, because he was talking about the Old Testament and prophecy and how it came about. There were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers Among you, they, referring to the false teachers, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Underline that phrase, church, destructive heresies. See, destructive heresies are teachings that veer off course from the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. When someone starts teaching a heresy, it destroys. And if we listen to it, it can destroy something in us. And that is what this message is going to be about. The shipwreck of faith. And he says here, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord. We get the Greek word there is despote. We get our word despot from this, but it is a benign despot. It is God who is sovereign and master over everything, okay? It's not like he's uh, just above me. No, he is totally far above, denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves, destructive heresies that's bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Well, it does more than that, we'll find out, but many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. Peter does not mince his words. He pulls no punches here. He calls a spade a spade. He says these men are evil. They veered off course And now they want others to follow them. And again, why is this? Because what you believe will impact the way you live. I'm going to be giving plenty of examples of this in just a little bit. It says here, the one who bought them. This is the Greek word agorazo. It comes from agora. You may be familiar with that word, actually. It means market or marketplace. It means to buy. Very simply, it's used very literally like buying fish at the marketplace. Half the usages of this word in the Bible, in the New Testament, are literal and have to do with a marketplace purchase. Others are figurative and talk about how God has purchased us. Purchased us by the blood of Jesus. 
It is very similar to the word redeem. This word is actually used more frequently. And, and I'm saying this because please understand, when you are redeemed, when you are purchased, you belong to him. It's not like Jesus purchased us 2,000 years ago and then we belong to him at conversion. He technically purchased us or redeemed us at the moment of conversion. This is important. There's actually no scripture that says that Jesus redeemed us 2,000 years ago at the cross. It doesn't say that. He made the spiritual funds available, if I can even word it that way. He made our forgiveness available. He made our purchase available. The price was paid. The purchase transaction took place when at age 14, Mike Curtis gave his heart to Christ. And I'm mentioning this because these men had been bought by the sovereign Lord. Bought a transaction. Ownership changed hands. Church, they had belonged to Jesus, but they veered off course. Number of ways in which this happened. Chapter 2 is devoted to how they veered off course and what that even looked like. We're not going to get into that anymore. Paul, just like Peter, faced similar men. Paul actually mentions in our text in 2 Peter, excuse me, 2 Timothy, he actually mentions two names we're going to look at. And we're going to try, we need to find out then, what does this veering off course look like? And what does it sound like? What does that teaching even sound like? We're going to get into that. So are you there with me in 2 Timothy chapter 2? I'm going to read just a few of the, the, the two verses I went over last week. I'm going to read them again. But we're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 14 and read through verse 19. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Paul has warned Timothy to avoid quarreling with words. Now, we looked at this last week. I'm not going to get into it any more than this. The focus is not on the words. The focus is on the quarreling. Words are important. Remember, we looked at, uh, I mentioned to you Galatians 3. In Galatians 3, Paul makes a big deal about whether a word is plural or singular. See, that's, that's, a, that's a, a, a teaching that is focused on a word. That's important because all of the words of Scripture, not just the ideas, but the words that make up the ideas, are inspired of God. God breathed, and therefore, without error. And 
is telling them, just don't argue about it. Don't quarrel about it. Later on, he talks, and we'll look at this in a week or two, but he talks about how the servant of God must not quarrel, period. No quarreling. Different Greek word there, but don't, don't get into arguments. that They're silly. And so, church, he's not saying don't care about truth. I mean, the whole point of tonight is, church, I want you to care about truth. I want you to listen to truth. I want you to believe the truth, and then I want you to follow and live out truth. Truth is important. That's his whole point here. Timothy, truth is so important. you got to cut straight the word of truth. But don't quarrel with someone. That only stirs up defensiveness. It, it instigates us pride. We do, so in, we do so kindly and lovingly with the hopes that as we preach truth, it's going to change their heart. But if they're defensive, if they're, no, 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 you're wrong, I'm right. If we stir that up in them, okay, you, you might want to just back down a bit. Um, because it's going to be really hard to win them. Now, there are times in which Jesus just dropped the bomb. Just dropped the bomb. You whitewashed tombs. I get that. There are places for that. Rare, rare, but there are places for that. Don't quarrel about words. And then he talks about the man of God. He wants to cut straight the word of truth. Don't twist it. Don't come with your bias to the text and make it say what you want it to say. Now, after that, then he gets into this interesting word. It's actually two words in the Greek. And he says in verse 16, avoid, here we go, godless chatter. Godless chatter. Literally, it means worldly, empty talk. Worldly, empty talk. That is, worldly talk that is empty of truth or real help, guidance. It's philosophical rantings based on worldly thinking rather than the Bible. Now, he, he challenged Timothy at the end of his last letter. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, he says this, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. What had been entrusted to his care was truth. Turn away from, same two words, godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in so doing, have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. Church, that is what we need, by the way, grace. Because the world has a lot to say. You, you got a truckload of it when you were in school, whether you went to college or just reading books or listening to the news or other, a lot of other stuff that Hollywood has their personal opinion on. You get a lot of what the world has to say. And we must know the truth. We must embrace it. We must believe it so that we can live it. But if we're not loving the truth, if we're not getting into the truth, then I'm going I'm to let you know it is, you, are, you are prey to all of the worldly chatter, philosophical rantings, whatever psychology says. Psychology says the homosexual is just that way. And it's actually wrong and even criminal, they say, to try and change them. Well, number one, I can't change anyone. But I tell you what, God's truth can. The Spirit of God can. The Spirit of God can set anyone free as long as we understand 
what the issue is. And I'm, I, I'm not convinced at all that psychologists, the worldly psychologists, understand what the issue is when it comes to homosexuality. Might touch on that later. Philosophical rantings, psychological ramblings, what the world has to say. Um, let me just give you an example here of worldly empty talk. This whole idea of erasing hell, very, very prevalent, especially in the emergent church that tries to say that they're evangelical. Don't be fooled by that term. They're anything, but for the most part, that's a big group, by the way, the emergent church. For the most part, they are not evangelical. For the most part, they don't stand on conservative teachings from God's word that the church has believed in for almost 2,000 years. They are liberal in how they believe. They look just like the liberals of the 1900s, except they try to love others better. And so because of that, that's their goal, it's okay for them to throw out the word of God or to just say, well, you know what? Jesus trumps Paul, so Jesus had nothing to say about homosexuality, so I'm not either, and you shouldn't condemn it. Paul did. Others did. The Old Testament did. The New Testament does. But Jesus just used this phrase, sexual immorality. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a big topic. I, I don't mean to get into that, but wow, was that a big topic. Jesus had something very clear to say about homosexuality, church. He really did. He did as well with adultery. He did as well with all types of sexual immorality. All types. And he put it under that classification, sexual immorality. Yes, Jesus had something to say about homosexuality. But when we're erasing hell in our day, it's generally embraced by th streams of thought like the, in the emergent church or progressive Christianity, perhaps a phrase you've heard. The problem, though, is as they go through Scripture, they say, before I look at Scripture, you know, God is a loving God. Right? Do you, do you agree with that? Raise your hand. Do you agree with that? God is a loving God. Yes, he is. How can a loving God punish someone forever? See, that's just not loving. So, what they, they take their definition of love, and then they say, well, this, of course, how, is how God must love. And so, therefore, God would never send anyone to hell. And so, I've seen them do this. They go, they get the word Gehenna, used 13 times in the New, New Testament, and they go with each one, and they just erase it. They, just, they come up with some reason or some excuse for what it means something else. It means this. It means that. They distort it however they want, and before you know it, all 13 are gone. There must not be a hell. Well, there's also the synonyms for hell, everlasting fire, eternal destruction, eternal punishment, and the like. Well, those are just metaphors, and it, wow, it just so grieves your heart when you listen to this. I mean, I don't jump up and down on the doctrine of hell. I don't. But you know what? The teaching of hell flows from the holiness of God. And if God is love, that's his essence, and he is holy, that's an attribute, and therefore his attribute flows from his essence. Holiness, the attribute, flows from the essence, God's love. God's holiness flows from his love. God's justice 
flows from his love. The doctrine of hell flows from his love. And I don't completely understand God's love because God's love is, guess what, it's infinite. And, and I'm not. And, and, and I'm sure you already know that. My family does. But I, I'm, not in, I'm not infinite in love. I don't understand God's infinite love. But he does. And so I've got to come to the text of Scripture to know the truth. I don't start with worldly chatter over here and try and make Scripture line up with whatever philosophy or psychology or science says over here. I don't do that. I have to start with God's word, and I have to understand it correctly. And there's a way to do that, church. And the gospel especially is absolutely clear. Absolutely clear. I understand people raggling about, well, can, should women be pastors? Or you know, what about baptism in the Holy Spirit? Does it always happen at conversion? Does it happen later? And I, I have my understanding of God's word on that. But it's not a hill that I'm going to die on. The gospel, though, is. I will die on that hill. Because people's eternal salvation rests on that. And that is at the hub and the core of the scriptures. And so when people try to erase hell... That is serious. Once you erase hell, once, you know, God is too loving. You never send anyone to hell and we start doing, to pull out our huge spiritual eraser and start going over scriptures and suddenly hell has disappeared. What do we live for here? Everyone's going to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe now. It doesn't matter. And if there is no hell, it doesn't matter how you live. Hitler is going to be right there with you, I guess, in heaven. doesn't matter about how many people you've killed in your life. Even if you went to the death chamber for it, you're going to heaven. Why? Because God has apparently erased hell. Faith has no effect. There is no, there's no purpose then for life when we start playing with these foundational doctrines. Some of you suggest you know it, evolution. I'm not saying that everyone who believes in evolution is going to hell. I'm not saying this. But when you start embracing evolution, when you start allowing what scientists, not science, but scientists say about this subject and that it trumps what God's word says, we're listening to worldly chatter, and now we're believing it, and there's going to be a consequence. You're going to see that in a moment, but there's going to be a consequence every time this happens. If God didn't create and make man in his image, we are no different than any other animal. We're that bug, that ant that you just accidentally stepped on. No different. You can rationalize all you want to make man a little bit more over the apex of his evolution. Okay, well, what about those who are just under? You know what? Hitler had quite a bit to say about this, by the way. It's called eugenics. Let me just tell you this, that if that's where we're coming from, we have two ultimate conclusions that that wrong philosophy, that worldly empty chatter will take you. Treat animals like humans or treat humans like animals. One of those two you're going to fall into, you're going to embrace, whether you think you are or not. 
And this is what Hitler did. He began to pick and choose who were the animals. And the Jews, in his opinion, were not completely human and therefore less evolved and they were not on the same plane as they were and you can treat them therefore however you want. Eugenics, genocide, all of this treats classes of people as if they are not human. This was the heart of slavery in America. This has been a plague and a blight on the face of America that we are trying to get rid of. And swinging, by the way, to the other side of the pendulum is no help at all. Thank you very much. We must be guided by God's truth. We must. Again, what we believe does matter. The world embraces this type of a God that he's loving but not really that holy. And this type of man who apparently has evolved but has now no purpose. There's consequences to what we believe. His example here is Hymenaeus and Philetus. It is not the first time that Paul has mentioned Hymenaeus. If you just go with me to 1st Peter, excuse me, 1st Timothy chapter 1 verses 19 and 20, he says this, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Well, that, that was the end of that previous sentence. He says, some have rejected these, that is, faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Wow. I'm sorry, but to shipwreck your faith, number one means that you're, you have faith. It's not just maybe kind of or a lukewarm or a not real not real, genuine faith. Paul doesn't treat it that way. They had genuine faith, but they shipwrecked it. They shipwrecked their faith. Among them are, hello, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Can I just assure you that this idea of disfellowshipping and handing over to Satan and in essence removing them from any kind of covenantal blessings that God pours out upon his people, his church, to, to remove them, 1 Corinthians 5 is where I'm taking this from, and allowing them now outside the church to endure the what he would then call punishment, but turning over to Satan to teach them not to blaspheme. You do that only to people who confess Christ. And you don't do it because you're trying to be mean-spirited, but you do it as a form of discipline. We have actually some examples in the New Testament that I'm not going to get into in which a person was living in sin, actually sleeping with his mother-in-law, excuse me, his, his stepmother, and the church was like totally okay with this. And Paul says, what? What? Please. <laughs> Please. Guys, this is wrong. Call him to repentance, and if he refuses to repent, turn him over to Satan. And Hymenaeus had been disfellowshipped. He was a member of the faith. He believed it. He taught it. But he veered off course. He rejected faith and a good conscience. What he believed and how he chose to live it, he shipwrecked his faith. Now, what does it say specifically here in 2 Timothy? It says that he taught 
a doctrine that the resurrection had already taken place. Now, at first glance, it's simple to just step back. Whoa, simple to just step back and say, "What's the big deal? I mean, is is it that serious?" Well, let me explain to you. Kind of along the lines he would have taught. See, if the resurrection had already happened, then that means that at the end of the age, where does your body stay? Where do you stay? Your body stays in the ground. There is no resurrection. There is no physical resurrection. There is no afterlife. Your faith only is valuable in this age. No more. This is all you get, the 70, 80, 80, 90 years if you're lucky, on this earth. Faith is of no value. You get to do good, I guess, if you truly believe. But hey, once you die, that's it. They effectively didn't just erase hell. They erased heaven. And as a result, he, he qualifies. He, he, gives, he says four things have happened because they were listening to ungodly chatter. Number one, it says, let me just get the verse here. Verse 16, he says, these types of people who embrace godly or godless chatter, or worldly empty talk, they grow more and more ungodly. Why? Because what you believe impacts your character, how you live. What you believe matters. Number two, it's teaching, he says, spreads like gangrene. It spreads like gangrene. Just a, two chapters later, he says in chapter four, verse three, he says, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, that is, sound teaching. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. They will embrace not truth, but worldly thinking. People, he says, there's a time coming, people will just want to listen to what they want. It's kind of like a smorgasbord. You know what that is? You kind of buffet. You just go through the buffet. Years and years ago, we went to a, a seafood restaurant, and it was a buffet. It was like all you could eat. It was like a seafood, it was awesome for only $15. Man, was that a long time ago. And we would just go through there three, four, five times, whatever, until we were just aching. But you just picked and choose whatever you want. And that is how many people, even Christians, treat truth. I like this truth. Don't like that. A little bit too spicy for me. And they move on and they pick and choose whatever truths they want to believe. And then they listen to the world. Yeah, that's what psychology said. Yep, okay, got that. Right, right. Okay, yeah, I'm going to pick this and I'm going to pick this. Yep, there we go. And they embrace worldly teaching. Church, there is only one way that you can know truth, the truth, and that is from the Word of God. That's the only way, okay? I'm not talking about two plus two equals four. Though the logic of that Please don't get me into that. That's, that well, there's, there's this, ooh. Even atheists stand on a Christian worldview to do their science. 
We have no reason to believe that the universe should be orderly. None whatsoever. But as Christians, we know that's the type of God that we serve because that's what the Bible says. God is orderly, and therefore logic is absolutely biblical. There's no other reason for an atheist. An atheist to do science has to stand on a Christian worldview just to do with science. I, I digress. So here then, he says that these people have wandered away from the truth. Just like in 2 Timothy chapter 2, denying the sovereign Lord that bought them. And by the way, in that verse, chapter 2, verse 1, denying, that word is the same word that we saw in chapter 2, verse 2, excuse me, verse 12, where he says, if we disown him, he will also disown us. And that is not just a temporary denying, it is a disowning of Jesus himself. These people disowned the sovereign Lord. Nothing to do, walking away. Embraced what they wanted to, to teach and lived accordingly. So they've wandered away from the truth. That means that they were on the track of truth and they veered off course. Church, we must Teachers must surround themselves with a sense of accountability to what they teach. When you are blogging, there is generally zero accountability for that blogger to teach truth. Unless someone goes on his website, and generally a lot of times now they don't allow, they, you can't even do that and interact with them because that turns into a mess. And so many bloggers don't even allow that type of feedback. They, there it is. And within the church, people need to be held to the truth. We need to help one another, gently, gracious. We're not quarreling about words because we realize that what you believe will impact the way you live. And if you are missing truth, we graciously want to help them not wander from that truth. Okay? That is actually a loving thing to do. Let me help you in, in seeing what the Word of God... Proverbs has so much to say about finances. The world, trust me, has a whole lot to say about finances, and many times they're in direct contradiction to each other. The Bible talks about delayed gratification. Hey, you know what? If you don't have the money, don't go out and borrow money and buy it. The world says, hey, have it now. That's what you were dreaming for, right? Just borrow some money and it doesn't matter. That's why... Our nation is what? How many trillion, 30 trillion dollars in debt? Just about it. It's, it's ridiculous. And well, it doesn't matter. Yet one day when China calls us on the carpet, it will matter very much. Anyway, they were teaching that the resurrection had already taken place. Basically, that the body was evil. And if the body is evil, why would God want to resurrect it? Only the spirit is what mattered. Some believe that it was eternal. Some believe that it didn't. It wasn't. There was a mishmash of Aristotelian philosophy mixed in. It eventually turned into, in the second century, what was known as Gnosticism. 
Paul basically that there was no afterlife, and Paul basically challenged this idea in 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection, your faith is worthless. It's vain. It has no value. Sorry, I'm looking at the clock here. There's a glare on it, and I can see now. I, I do see what time it is. It's only 7 o'clock, right? Just kidding. Just kidding. I know it's, it's 20 after. Unfortunately, then, what happens with this truth, if our faith really matters so very little, if it impacts so little, because there's no eternity, then why? Why don't I just indulge in sin? And this is actually what Gnosticism, in its full-blown form, the next century did teach. That if the body is evil and it won't be resurrected, doesn't matter if you give into it it doesn't matter it's just physical and the physical did not matter only the spiritual so if your body engaged in sexual immorality that wasn't sin wow and this was caught was destroying the faith it says of some the many wow i hope that the many were wise enough to to love the truth, embrace it, believe it, so it impacted the way they lived, and they could recognize what Hymenaeus and Philetus were teaching was absolutely wrong. It was godless chatter. It was worldly, empty talk. But I, it never ceases to amaze me how people come up with new ideas. Why? Because they listen to the world, they come up with a certain conclusion, and then they go to the Bible to try and prove it. And they have it completely backwards. I start with the Bible. Because this is what God spoke. And from that, I then see how to walk it out. I then see how, and I have discovered in my personal life that all psychology, true psychology, sociology, anthropology, all, all disciplines of science that are supposed to be like exact, they all line up with the word of truth. And if they veer off course, it's not because the Bible's wrong, it's because hey, you know what, Dr. Spock, maybe disciplining your children really is important, seeing that how your daughter turned out. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. But anyway, he had a huge problem with his daughter because he never chose to discipline her. And he wrote a whole book and led a whole generation astray by saying, don't discipline your children. So maybe that was way before your time if you're too young. What you believe impacts the way you live. I want to just touch on a few examples before wrapping up here tonight. Let's, let's start with this one. There are many cults today that do not believe that Jesus is God. And at first glance, it might be, why do we want to be so picky? Whether he was God or just like the highest created being of God, what's the big deal? Well, here's what the big deal is. Number one, Scripture is very clear on this. That only God, the eternal God, can forgive sin and can some way, through his sacrifice, wash away the penalty for my infinite offense of sin. Because God's holiness is infinite, my offense is infinite, and only an infinite being can pay for that offense. If Mike Curtis, a finite being, tries to pay for it, he'll do it for all of eternity. See, that's how hell works. Hell is bereft of God, 
no presence, no love. It is only me suffering for my sins for all eternity. But see, if God suffers for my, the infinite being suffers for my infinite offense, then they are completely forgiven. You see, secondly, Jesus says, or, or that God says, that only he is to be worshipped. So if Jesus is not God, we certainly shouldn't worship him. And if we do, the Bible calls that what? Idolatry. Don't, don't worship someone who's not God. Well, this goes further because not only do we worship Jesus, but see, only God has the right and the place and the majesty and glory to call any of his creation to be solely so transfixed with him, so devoted to him that they would even die for him. Only God. And so for this reason, if Jesus is not God, then what a blasphemer because he told people that they should be willing to die in their faith for him. Wow. See, that's devotion. This gets at the heart of the gospel. If Jesus is not God, do not, church, do not fully trust in him. But let me tell you, if Jesus is God, and my Bible says it everywhere, if he is, then you are obligated to follow him and only him with every fiber of your being and every wish in your heart. It's all his. He deserves it. Why? Because he's God. He's not just some created being. He is God, and God shares his glory with no one. See, that's Jesus' place. Jesus is the crux. He's the center of Christianity. And if he is not God, excuse me, but then he's a blasphemer. I think you get the point. When, I'm, I'm just going to skip to this last example because of time. In our day, one of the most common things to do is to excuse sin. Is to say, oh my goodness, how dare you take the life of that infant? But a few moments before birth, it's okay to kill them. And it follows no logical rules whatsoever. It's in philosophy what they call a slippery slope. There is no difference whether that baby is outside the womb by one minute or inside the womb by one minute or two minutes outside the womb or two minutes inside the womb or one day outside the womb or one day inside the womb and you understand where this goes what is the difference just because the umbilical cord was cut the truth is god says that that child is made in the image of god but we live in a day that embraces evolution and i'm not saying that's the sole reason for it because cultures without believing in evolution have practiced abortion it's just that they devalue human life and unfortunately that is what human nature will always try to do that's why there was slavery in america in england throughout the world that's why we constantly treat some people as if they're beneath us the rich to the poor the bosses to the employee they're beneath them and we treat them that way. And God says, no. Because you are, you're living as if there is no such thing as the image of God. The imprint of the Almighty on them. 
They are valuable, so valuable that Jesus, so God so loved the world that he came to their rescue in the person of Jesus. That's how much God loved them. We excuse things like abortion. We excuse things like, true story, like fornication. Having sex outside of the context of marriage. I didn't think this was possible. But you come across stuff new like every day. And one man was telling me that his daughter felt as a Christian that it was completely okay to engage in sexual immorality, what I'll call fornication, sex outside of the context of marriage, that it was okay for her to do it and she could actually prove it from the Bible. And she was convinced of this. And let me just say, she was sleeping with her boyfriend, living with her boyfriend. And so, okay. I mean, I, I get that. Because that is the nature of man. When we are caught in sin, we find a way, if God says no, to somehow make it so that God's not saying no, and I'm okay with it now. God, God's not disappointed in my lifestyle. There's, I'm not being convicted of sin because this isn't sin. But it doesn't stop at fornication. We live in a day in which the sin of homosexuality is now excused. And I've went through this several months ago in, in the the. the, the I think it was about six weeks long or more, just looking at truth itself. So this is kind of like a revisit of that sermon series. But people looked at the Old Testament in Leviticus 18 and 19 that says a man shouldn't sleep with a man, shouldn't lay with a man the way he does with a woman. This is an abomination. And the word abomination, they say, well, see, that means that that's used in the context of cultic prostitution. And so... Leviticus 18 and 19, when it's condemning homosexuality, it was condemning homosexuality only in the context of cultic prostitution. Well, that is so far off course. That word is actually used 22 times in Proverbs, and only two times does it have anything to do with idolatry. The others have to do with things like pride, murder. Not pride and murder in the context of cultic prostitution, by the way. Okay, Pride and murder, that's an abomination to the Lord. And when we come to the Romans chapter 1, very clear, Paul says, man, guys, you should not be sleeping with other guys. Women, don't be sleeping. Don't be having sex with other women. This is homosexuality. And the excuse is now, and it's, it's like everywhere in the church. Well, the context there is, guess what? <laughs> Cultic prostitution. See, no, it's not. It's just not. He's not talking about homosexuality in the context of cultic prostitution. If you look at the passage, starting with verse 18, he's talking about men who are trying to fight and hide the righteousness that's been revealed from God from heaven. They've been trying to suppress that truth by their wickedness, not their cultic prostitution, their wickedness. That's the context. And so Paul says, because they have done this, God gives them over to all kinds of wickedness. The first example is cultic prostitution. The second one is homosexuality. The third one is things like disobedience to their parents, lying. Not in the context of cultic prostitution, but any context. Don't do it. Because when we sin, and we sin, and we sin, and our heart becomes hard to sin, and we do not repent, God eventually gives us over to our sin. That is, by nature, what happens in our hearts. And God just says, if that's what you love so much, you can have it. 
the church has listened far too long to the world and its philosophical and psychological ramblings and has come to the conclusion that they're just born that way. And as a result, it can't be sin. So it must be okay. Now, I assure you that as with any sin, truly my heart breaks for people who are caught in their sin. I've seen how sin has destroyed people's lives. It's destroyed marriages. It's destroyed homes. Children have been scarred by this, by these by parents caught up in sin. Sin destroys. It's, it's like a cancer. Paul says it's like a gangrene that just grows and grows. It's not just what you believe, it's then how you live. And when we start teaching these things that are from the world and not God's word, it will destroy us. And so I need to conclude with this in view of the time. Church, be a lover of the truth. Love the truth. Spend time in the word of God. Don't just sit back on your haunches. Don't, don't just say, well, you know, I've studied the Bible a lot in the past, so I don't need to anymore. You need a regular dose of the word, church. You need to be like that tree that's planted by streams of water. Not 10 years ago in Sunday school when you got the word a lot, but right now today, every day, as much as you can, getting into the word and letting the truth just constantly challenge you and restore you and encourage you to move on and to live radically in this generation. That's the type of disciple Jesus wants. A disciple that loves truth and is hungry for it. It's like the air that he breathes. And he loves it so much he's willing to stand on it, not argue with it, but to plead for those whose ship is sinking. I have a rope here. I have a life preserver. I have a lifesaver. His name's Jesus. He's found in the gospel. I call you to follow him. No one else. Turn a deaf ear to what the world says. It's only Jesus that can save. That, come, that message comes from not a heart that wants to accuse and finger point from a, but from someone who truly is passionately in love with that Savior and in love with what he has written and wants to offer that truth to the world that will point them to the only God that can save, to the only truth that can rescue us, and that is found in Jesus. Church, can you stand with me? If you, if you get something from this sermon tonight, let it be this, that when I go home today, tomorrow, the next day, I want to find time to be in the Word, and I want it to just challenge and transform me every day because I love it. And I want to listen to it because if I'm not careful, then I'm going to start listening to the world. And then, Father, I, I just ask you, Lord, we want to be disciples of Jesus who follow you at any cost. Father, we want to be gracious in how we cast the net of truth to the world to bring in that drought of fish, so to speak. We want to be loving and kind.